If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Crimean War of 1853 to 1856 saw Russia clash with an alliance of forces including Britain, France and the Ottoman Empire. But what were the causes of this conflict? Why does it still exert such a hold on the Russian imagination today? And how important a role did Florence Nightingale really play? To tackle these questions and more, Matt Elton was joined by the historian Professor Andrew Lambert for the latest episode in our Everything You Want to Know series. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the Crimean War. As always with these Everything podcasts, it's a mix of popular search results and listener questions, and then some of my own thrown in to hopefully tie things together. So some of the most popular search results, as you might expect with this kind of thing, are fairly general. What is the Crimean War? When was the Crimean War? So I suppose, to start with, if you had to give like a one or two line summary of the Crimean War... How, how how would you sum it up that briefly? The Crimean War, 1854 to 1856, unless you're Turkish, in which it started in 1853, uh, and for the Russians too, it's a war uh, that culminates a 40-year period of heightened tension between Britain and Russia, uh, essentially a 19th century Cold War. It's about global influence, it's about economic power, it's about strategic um, position, And ultimately, it's about the future of the declining Ottoman Empire and whether the Russians can punch through out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and become a Western European power. The British back Ottoman Turkey because it's not a threat and it's a very good economic partner. The war is fought famously in the Crimea, but the Crimea is not the primary theatre of the war. The primary theatre of the war is in the Baltic, which is where the Russian capital is, And the primary instrument of victory in the war is economic warfare. 
So there is an awful lot to unpack there. And we'll get into some of those themes over the next 50 minutes or so. BTHayer00 on Instagram asks the, uh, it's a very brief question, but I suspect the answer is quite involved. What caused the Crimean War? And I, what I thought we could do with that question is talk a little bit about the situation before the conflict started and some of, some of the primary things that led to the conflict. The origins of the Crimean War go back well into the 18th century. Uh, they start with the Russian invasion of the Crimea in the 1780s, the capture of the first-class harbour at Sevastopol, which then became the base of a new Russian Black Sea fleet, which posed a serious strategic threat to the Ottoman Empire, whose capital, Istanbul, is on the Bosphorus, which is a narrow waterway which heads down from the Black Sea at quite a high rate of knots, uh, all the way past Istanbul and then through the Dardanelles. From Sevastopol, you can sail a fleet far faster to Istanbul than you can get up from the Mediterranean to save Istanbul. So the Russians have a a strategic advantage based on the wind, the tide uh, and location. And this position means that they hold at risk the centre of the Ottoman Empire. And if they take that out, all the pieces collapse in a heap and Russia is able to march forward rapidly. And after 1815, Britain and Russia are the two dynamic powers in the global system. They have radically opposing political concepts, much as they do today, uh, increasingly inclusive, democratic, liberal, free trading versus autocratic, closed society, closed trading loops, uh, militarized versus very unmilitarized. So Britain is, an, is a global sea power. Russia is a continental military empire. And it's a clash of cultures. It's a clash of strategic ambition. And the clash is over Turkey, but it's not restricted to Turkey. And, and as a result, we get this war, which everybody thinks is all about the Crimea, which it's not. Uh, it's all about Turkey, which it's not. It's actually a much bigger, long-running conflict between these two great powers in which Turkey is one of the potential flashpoints. Uh, The others include Iran, Afghanistan, Finland, um, northern Norway, uh, Alaska and China. So there's an awful lot at stake and an awful lot of uh, territories, nations involved in this potential conflict. Um, I wanted to go back to 1815, the Treaty of Vienna, um, which was responsible for, I think I'm right in saying, holding in place a sort of a status quo, a world order. What led that to break down and the peace and stability be replaced by this conflict? In many ways, the Crimean War is an attempt to maintain the Vienna Settlement. The Vienna Settlement was heavily influenced by the British, who were determined that post-war Europe would not fall under the sway of another great warlord, as it had under Napoleon. They were well aware that the obvious candidate was the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, who liked to see himself as the, the great man of the age. And so what the British do at Vienna is they hand in many of the advantages they have as an economic and colonial superpower. They avoid becoming engaged in Europe. They don't put any troops into Europe, but they they order Europe in a way that makes it effectively self-balancing. So they use alliances with the Austrians and the Prussians to control the French, but they align with the Austrians and the French to control the Russians So they're they're basically creating a system where they can balance Europe from offshore, 
rely on naval and economic strength rather than military power. And in that way, preserve order at low cost so they can deal with the real elephant in the room throughout this period, which is a massive national debt. Levels of national indebtedness that we have not yet seen this year. These people have spent 22 years paying down, a, paying up a huge bill, a king's ransom's worth of bills in which they've used money to help liberate Europe. What they desperately want is a long period of peace, very low estimates and cutting defence and all other expenditure. So the purpose of Vienna for the British is to keep everything quiet, keep everybody under control and avoid another major war, which will just add to the bill. And so um, what are the, the key things, I suppose, that lead us, usher us in from period of peace to the outbreak of, of this war? From the 1820s onwards, particularly after the arrival of Nicholas I as Tsar in 1825, Russia is more aggressive, it's more nationalist, it's more orthodox Christian, it's more Slavic. It's starting to take on tones that we see this year. Uh, the parallels between Putin and Nicholas I are significant. Putin knows and admires Nicholas I. He is one of his great heroes. So Nicholas is looking to expand Russian power in the way that Putin looks at it. If we expand our strength and influence, we will be more secure. We need, we need buffer zones against an aggressive West, which is coming at us not just with new weapons, but with new ideologies. What he's really frightened of is radical Republican political organisations. He sees the British as a bit of a stalking horse for radical political politics. So he's very much looking at strategy as solving a problem. And his regime is dominated by the secret police and mass censorship. Um, he's not patrolling the internet, but he's certainly patrolling the newspapers and destroying all newspapers coming into Russia to block off the channel of, of information. So he's setting up a clash, and he certainly sees that the future should include seizing the Ottoman Empire. His elder brother is Grand Duke Constantine, and it's not accidental he was named after the founder of the Byzantine Empire. His grandmother, Catherine, had set that up. So Alexander was to rule Russia and Constantine was to be the new Byzantine emperor. Nicholas was the third and spare emperor who ended up on the throne of Russia. So we're looking at a worldview in which aggression, conquest and Russian supremacy are normal. Russia maintains a million-man army. It's by far the largest army in the world at this stage. And they're not frightened to use it. They suppress risings in Poland. They put down a revolution in Hungary in 1848. And Hungary isn't even part of their empire. It's an Austrian territory. And they, they put it down because it's a radical Republican revolution and they hate these things. So Nicholas is coming to the end of his life and he's more and more nervous about the threat from the West, the technology threat, the political threat, the economic threat. And so when this crisis breaks, and it breaks over... A rather petty thing. In the, the holy places in Palestine, the monks who look after the various shrines are almost entirely from either Orthodox or Roman Catholic monasteries. And they end up fighting on the streets of Bethlehem about who has a right to put their gold star up somewhere in one of the holy sites, leading to casualties, fatal casualties. So monastic men killing each other with um, holy instruments 
The Russians complain that this is not agreeable. The French complain that what the French or the Russians have just secured in terms of a deal is unacceptable. The French then send a battleship to Istanbul, which is in breach of international law. And not accidentally, the battleship is called the Charlemagne, just to remind the Turks of what happens when they mess with the French. The Russians respond by sending a fleet and a military mission to Istanbul, and they demand that the Turks give them the right to protect all the Christian subjects within the Ottoman Empire. That's about a third of the entire population of the Ottoman Empire. That would utterly destroy the empire as a cohesive political force. The Turks predictably resist. The British and French then realize that Russia probably is meaning to overthrow the Ottoman Empire, and they form an alliance to protect it. But it is not an alliance which is going to do anything other than this defensive task. So they're holding the Vienna settlement by signing a self-denying ordinance. We are not going to take territory as a result of this war. We're just going to stop the Russians. So, And they're playing for the moral high ground. They're trying to get the whole of Europe on board. So they want the Austrians and the Prussians to sign up too, but they don't. They want moral sanction, the kind of things we're talking about today. You know, if all the world is against Russia, surely the Russians will stop what they're doing. That's what they're doing in the 1850s. Parallels are very, very strong. The Russians won't back down. It's mostly personal pride. Um, the Turks start the war by attacking the Russians across the Danube. And the British and French come in about four months later, after the war is well underway. And the Turks have taken a, a big defeat at sea which really drags the British in because the only way to protect Turkey now is for the Royal Navy to go into the Black Sea and push the Russians back. And it's no accident that the main campaign of the war is the destruction of Russia's naval base in the Black Sea. That's the obvious target and has been long before the war started. The minister who planned the operation says the eye tooth of the bear must be drawn. Um, that's what Sevastopol and the fleet is. It's, it's a primary offensive weapon of Russia. And that's why it's the target. It's, it fits in with that moral idea that we must restrain these aggressive Russians, we must take away their hardware, and we must stop them being able to do this in future. We are not going to take Russia down, we're going to take down its means of attacking Turkey. So naval uh, warfare and the naval arena is absolutely crucial in understanding this whole conflict. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And one of the problems we have with the Crimean War is if you say Crimean War and anybody knows what you're talking about, uh, they will have visions of deluded cavalry charges, um, thin red lines of infantry, um, and Florence Nightingale um, attending to some nursing. Uh, the first two are trifling events, and the last one um, is a misunderstanding. Florence Nightingale at this stage was not a nurse. She's a hospital manager and a very good one. Uh, all of this is, is, in fact, legendary. So this is a war that has many legends, but the reality has been forgotten. In order to get to the Crimea, the British army has to get on ships. Those ships are run by the Navy. It's landed in the Crimea by the Navy. Most of the heavy artillery used in the siege of Sevastopol is naval. Many of the gunners are naval. Um, right alongside the thin red line at the Battle of Balaclava were the Royal Marines of the fleet who were backing up the Highlanders. Um, all of the medical evacuation, all of the supplies, the whole thing is run by the Navy. The main theatre of the war in the Baltic is entirely naval. And there's very little violence there because the Russians won't come out to fight and the British don't need to invade Russia. They attack the Russian economy. So this is a, a maritime strategic camp effort. 
in the, in the Baltic, in the Black Sea, in the White Sea, and in the Pacific. And in all four theatres, the primary target is the Russian Navy and its bases. Is there a key aspect or episode of this naval dimension that you think has been particularly unfairly overlooked? I think we need to look at war termination. How does this war come to an end? So on 9th September 1855, Sevastopol falls to a very well-organised French infantry assault. It's basically a small-scale Western Front operation, very limited distance covered, important tactical positions secured, the Russians retreat, abandon the city. The war is finally signed off in March the next year. And in the interval, two very important things have happened. Russia has become bankrupt. It's economically dysfunctional and is unable to continue fighting. And the coalition against Russia is expanding. Late in 1855, Britain and France guaranteed the territorial integrity of Sweden and Norway. And if you remember back to earlier this year, that's pretty much what the Prime Minister did in Stockholm. And then Sweden and Finland joined the coalition against Russia in 2022, much as Sweden did in 1855. So broadening the coalition, refocusing the war back on the Baltic, and then the Royal Navy builds an enormous fleet to attack St. Petersburg and the island of Kronstadt, which is its primary defence system. And they don't do this secretly, they do in public. They announce all of it in the Times every day. And by the time we get to the breakup of Baltic ice in late March 1856, the Royal Navy has 250 gunboats, a dozen armoured batteries, it has mortar vessels, there's a whole floating armada of warships, stores and equipment. It's going to sit down off St. Petersburg and destroy all the fortifications and hold the city at risk. And this is how the Russians are brought to peace. They have no money, they're losing friends, the coalition is growing, and there is a serious strategic threat to their capital city. And when you're an empire, your capital city is more than just a city. It's a symbol of your whole power system. And the Russians back down. They they sign the Allied terms and peace is restored before the great fleet is used. But when the war ends, there is a grand celebration in Britain of victory. It's a parade of the entire Baltic fleet for 1856 at Spithead on St George's Day. It's attended by the Queen and all of the diplomatic corps attached to the Court of St James. Just to remind everybody what British, British power really looks like. And it's not 600 cavalrymen or a few thousand red-coated infantrymen. It is the world's largest power projection force, uh, the Royal Navy's Baltic fleet. And for the rest of the 19th century, if the Russians were annoying anywhere near Turkey or Afghanistan, the British would mobilise a fleet at Portsmouth and say, this is the Baltic fleet. And the Russians would then back down. The British never had to send another fleet into the Baltic. So between those early naval skirmishes and this conclusion of the war, there's obviously a whole range of things take place. And at this point, we should dip into some of the questions we've had from listeners and visitors to search engines. Now, some of these, I suspect, may turn out to be the misunderstandings or the legendary stuff that we've talked about. But I think it's interesting to address some of that. So um, Alan Blackheart, 48, just wants to know, he's one of many people who wants to know about the the key battles. Um, And if we were to take the sort of three key battles in this war, 
what would you say they were? And what's the overall movement or direction that these battles took place in? So the first major British Allied victory of the war is in the Baltic. The British and French surround the Orland Islands, which lie between the south coast of Finland and the east coast of Sweden. And they capture a major Russian fortress and small naval base, which is then destroyed. It's almost entirely without fatal casualties. They use overwhelming force. This is in August 1854. Uh, the Allied army in the Black Sea region is still in Bulgaria. They haven't even sailed for the Crimea. So this is the first major victory. The next major victory, I think, is the Battle of the Inkerman, which is the one time the Russians have the power to actually drive the Allies out of the Crimea. And through a combination of good luck, poor Russian command and control, and really resolute low-level decision-making by NCOs and, and private soldiers, uh, the British are able to hold the high ground. And if you look at the Crimean War Memorial in Waterloo Place in London, it's a memorial to the men of the Brigade of Guards who fought in that battle. So that is the really important battle because it's it blocks the one time the Russians really look like they might win this campaign. And the third decisive battle is the seizure of the Straits of Kerch, which have been in the news quite a lot recently, and the insertion of a Royal Navy and French Navy gunboat force into the Sea of Azov to destroy the logistics links that kept the Sevastopol and the Crimea supplied. A small squadron of shallow draft gunboats, steam-powered, went round the Sea of Azov, wiping out Russian stores of grain. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And fodder, fodder is hugely important. Um, blocking off the supply of ammunition, weapons, and the movement of men at absolutely trifling cost. And this meant that by the autumn of 1855, Sevastopol had run out of a lot of things, and the Russians had had to move their cavalry out of the Crimea because they couldn't feed the horses. And they couldn't feed the draft animals either, so they couldn't move anywhere. They were forced to stand the siege till the end, um, and it was impossible. So the Russians stood one last assault and then retreated. They knew they would have to. They, they couldn't hold the city for logistical reasons. And that battle, completely forgotten because seizing Kerch is fairly easy, sailing around the, the Sea of Azov is fairly easy, but strategically, that is the killer blow in the whole Crimean campaign. Nobody ever looks at it because it doesn't involve a great deal of bloodshed. So this is a war when the Victorians haven't had a war for a while. It's 40 years since Waterloo. And they seem to be very obsessed with bloodshed and casualties and suffering. And so the war is remembered as a litany of suffering when, in fact, wars are not fought about suffering. Suffering happens. They're fought to secure political and strategic objectives. And 
if you privilege casualties over consequence, you end up with a very strange view of war. War is not fought to kill lots of enemy soldiers or indeed to see many of your own killed. It's fought to secure political objectives. And these are the battles that secure the political objectives that really matter. So the Baltic becomes a Western rather than a Russian lake. Uh, the Russians lose in the Crimea, Sebastopol is destroyed, and the Black Sea is demilitarized. So no, no Russian warships in the Black Sea for the next 20 years. These are the objectives that are being fought for, and these are the events that secure them. Do you think that Victorian obsession, if you like, with bloodshed is one of the reasons that things like the Charge of the Light Brigade still have such a hold on popular imagination? Yeah, the Charge is a very special case. So everybody thinks it's a catastrophe and everybody got killed. Um, That simply isn't true. Perhaps you could very briefly, sorry, at this point, just uh, situate that charge in for people who don't know when it happened. The Charge of the Light Brigade, it happens as the climax of the second major battle in the invasion of the Crimea. The Allies have marched round to the south of Sevastopol. They've opened up siege lines and the Russians are using some recently arrived reinforcements to put pressure on the other side of the Allied siege lines to attack them in, in reverse, essentially, marching into an area which was lightly garrisoned by Turkish and Egyptian troops and forcing the Allies to abandon their siege operations and about face and march about 10 miles down onto the low ground to fight the Russians. It's quite a clever plan, but it's only intended to distract the Allies. It's not a full-scale attack. They don't have the manpower to do this. The attack begins with the Russians capturing several outworks that are held by Turkish and, and Egyptian troops, uh, not of the first quality. They weren't the best Turkish troops, it's quite clear. The British, who are on that side of the siege lines, have to respond, and the only force they've got available is cavalry, because cavalry aren't much use in a siege. So the heavy brigade and the light brigade are deployed basically to block the Russian attack while the infantry come down to take up position. The Russians try to swing down to the harbour of Balaclava to basically destroy the logistics link of the Allied armies, and they're blocked by a regiment of Highlanders, the 93rd, and as they retreat um, uphill through a vineyard, they are attacked by the heavy brigade. So these are big men on big horses, um, as you would see at the the trooping of the guard. Um, Those are Crimean War uniforms, those big helmets and and breastplates and, and thigh boots. They didn't charge the enemy because they were going uphill through a vineyard. They they just cantered into them and smashed them out of the way because the Russians were light cavalry on very small horses. And the Russians then departed and were heavily damaged by the Royal Horse Artillery who fired on them uh, once they broke and ran. At this point, Lord Raglan, who commands, has seen that the Russians are taking some British guns out of the batteries that the Turks had lost earlier in the day. And he orders the light brigade supposedly lighter cavalry, to go forward and recover those guns. They're on high ground, which he can see because he's on an elevated rise. He can see the whole battlefield. But the Light Brigade's leader cannot see this situation at all. He's much lower down. He's below the level of the bat- those batteries. He can't see any guns. And when he asks the ADC who brought the order, which guns, I don't see any guns, the ADC rather carelessly points down a long valley at the end of which are indeed some Russian guns. Um, Lord Cardigan 
who was a very brave man but not gifted intellectually, uh, decided that this was a challenge to his courage and he set off taking the Light Brigade with him. And they then proceeded down the valley, taking some casualties. They charged through the Russian gun line and drove off three and a half thousand Russian cavalry uh, who fled the field in chaos. Uh, that was two regiments of British light cavalry. Uh, the rest arrived later. The operation should have been finished by the heavy brigade who were waiting to follow them up, but they were then hauled off by the senior cavalry general, Lord Lucan. When the initial muster happened at the end of the charge, it was thought that 500 men had either been killed or wounded somewhere in the battle. But that was an entirely erroneous understanding. These were the men who were able to ride back at a good pace to the start point. By the end of the day, nearly 500 men had returned to the lines uh, and others were captured or, or lost their horses. So the initial report of a complete wipeout of these brave fellows appeared in the Times. It was then read by Lord Tennyson, who wrote his famous poem. Shortly afterwards, he realised that his poem was based on a complete misunderstanding of, of reality, but it was a cracking verse and he published it anyway. Um, and that's led, that popular culture reference has dominated the way we read that battle. This is a battle in which the British cavalry performed such prodigious feats that the Russians never came out to challenge them again on horseback. They were petrified because they quickly realised the British troopers were sober and Russian troopers wouldn't have done that uh, unless they were very drunk. Um, they were also petrified of the power of British horses. The British Army's cavalry horses were infinitely better than those of the Russians and indeed the French. So the, light, the British Light Brigade horses were bigger, stronger and faster than anything the Russians had. And after the battle, wounded British horses were, were bought by Russian noblemen as bloodstock. They're the basis of all modern sporting and racing horses in the Western world. Um, because as you know, 19th century English gentlemen cared far more for horses and dogs than they did for their human relations. If you've ever been in a stately home, it's packed full of pictures of bloodstock. So this battle has been represented as some kind of class conflict, as a, as a battle between idiotic aristocrats and, and solid working class fellows who do as they're told. Um, there's an element of that, but the reality is that operation used the finest piece of technology the, the British army had in the Crimea, which was well-bred horses. And all the horses would have died in the winter anyway, so it was probably the best possible use of that force. But it, it then became a stick to beat the aristocratic government of Britain with. So the main political challenge to the government during the war comes from a group called the Administrative Reform Association who call for middle-class government and middle-class officers. So it becomes part of class war immediately. But it's not working class versus posh people, it's middle class versus posh people. And the middle class is saying, look, we're educated and talented, we can make a better job of this. And that's the battle into which all of these other debates about the Crimean War has to be seen. So Florence Nightingale is the heroine of the war because she's the only middle class person who's really standing out in this whole conflict. You know, the war is fought by aristocrats and, and working class soldiers. Florence is very, very posh. She's only just working class. You know, she knows most of the cabinet as on first name terms with the prime minister. So she's not uh, unconnected. But she is made to stand in essentially for the absent work, middle class hero figure 
that the Administrative Reform Association and other political groups needed to, to make the case that what we needed was more political reform, more inclusive government, uh, and much less influence for aristocrats. So Lord Lucan and Lord Cardigan are, are actually you know, whipping boys for a completely different agenda, which has got nothing to do with cavalry, cavalry command or, or indeed charging anybody. It's about a battle in the House of Commons. 1855, the big battle in the House of Commons is about political reform. It's not about fighting the war. So the war is subordinate to a political battle. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So there's a way in which the Russians see the world, and this war fits that pattern. This is a war in which the bad guys attack Russia. They always forget the bit where the Russians start it. They just remember the sad bit at the end when they lose. The Russians started this war. They attacked first. They crossed the Turkish border. They seized Turkish territory. I mean, you mentioned uh, Florence Nightingale there. You uh, probably would expect, and we did get a whole load of questions about Florence Nightingale and about Mary Seacole, about their relationship and about how, I suppose, medicine and aid was administered in the war at large. Is there anything that you think we should understand about this story that perhaps doesn't usually get told? Yeah, I think, um, again, Florence Nightingale ends up inventing the modern nursing profession. She ends up driving something that we all take, not, not just for granted, but we absolutely rely on. But she's not doing that in the Crimea. Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War is a hospital manager. She understands the principles of what's being done, and she's able to oversee the work on the wards, but much of the work is being done by male orderlies, as had always been the case. Bandsmen, uh, buglers, people like that who are non-combatants but part of the regimental strength. Um, women of her class would not have dreamt of putting their hands on the dirty, damaged bodies of working-class men. That simply was a no-no. So any female nursing that was done was not done by her or her immediate circle. It was done by women of lower status, uh, many of them coming through holy orders. So there are quite a lot of, of Catholic nuns involved. Florence Nightingale's great feat really is to take command of a fairly disparate group of organisations that are sending out nursing people into the theatre and to stop it becoming chaos. She imposes order and gets control of the funds and the story, and she's able to use that to shape a process which is much more effective than it would have been. So it's her managerial skills that really matter. It's her ability to connect with government and to get government support that's absolutely important. She's in the Crimea very briefly and falls very ill while she's there. So she's not frontline Crimea. She's in a hospital on the other side of, of the Bosphorus from Istanbul, where the casualty rates were no different to the other hospitals, something she realised after the war, uh, which led her to have an obsession with sanitation, which feeds into a growing Victorian obsession with sanitation. We're all familiar with, the, with that issue as well. Um, by contrast, Mary Seacole goes out to run a hotel, a bar, a place where people with enough money can buy some dinner. But she also takes a very active role in in combat, first aid um, and dealing with the wounded as far as far as it's possible for one person to do so. So there are very different ends of, of the, the care spectrum. One is organising it and the other one is delivering it. 
One is organizing it as an extension of government. The other one is delivering it as an extension of hospitality. So it's it's almost taking the hospitality sector into war and providing comfort and and aid on the battlefield. She has medical knowledge and she's able to do that that very effectively. And she's one of the other Crimean celebrities. And I think Mary Seacole and Florence Nightingale are probably the only two that people at the time don't have doubts about. You mentioned earlier we, we were discussing the role of horses, particularly in this conflict. Rumham55 on Instagram asks, did any country have a distinct advantage in military hardware or weaponry? Yeah, that's a very good question. The British and French have a serious advantage on the battlefield. They have rifled muskets, whereas the Russians only have smoothbore muskets. That means an accurate range three times that of the Russians. So in all the open field infantry combat, the Russians are being mown down by Allied rifle fire. And toward as the war progresses, the Turkish troops also have rifles. The Russians simply can't make rifles and they can't import them. The Russians in Sevastopol have lots of artillery, and mostly big naval artillery, so they're not short of firepower. Um, the Allies have other advantages. They will deploy the world's first armoured warships in battle, the attack on Kinburn on October 17, 1855. Three armoured batteries specifically designed to attack coastal forts are used by the French. The British have several as well. So this is a new technology. The Russians in this war would make the first use of underwater moored mines to sink ships. Mines aren't big enough, so they don't sink any ships, but they're laying big minefields and the Allied navies have to sweep them up. So that's part of it. Uh, Long-range artillery was using heavy rifled artillery for the first time in the history of war. The British are using an eight-inch rifle gun designed by Charles Lancaster, which is throwing a projectile best part of two miles, and it will hit a warship two miles away. This is a very accurate piece of technology. It's been introduced by the Navy and the Army before the war, and is used very effectively during it. So there are some military technical advantages. The Russians don't have much new technology. The mines are developed for them by Swedish and Russian engineers, Swedish and German engineers. They're not not Russian products. But they tell us a lot about Russia. It needs to close the sea and stop people using it. And so they fill it with mines. Um, Allied horses, um, particularly British horses, were very powerful animals all round with very long endurance. The charge of the light brigade is five times as far as an 18th century cavalry force would have charged. So these are much bigger, stronger animals. The French have very good horses. They're mainly of North African descent. So they're smaller and more agile horses, more used to campaigning in in rough terrain. Uh, But both of them have better cavalry than the Russians. So a lot of interesting things going on there. This is right on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. So down in Bristol, you've got one of the army transports, the SS Great Britain, who carried British and Turkish troops around the Black Sea Theatre. And it was too big to go into Balaclava Harbour. Um, so the Admiral commanding of Balaclava said, don't send that again, please, because I, I can't put it in anywhere. It's just huge. Uh, So iron steamships are massively important in the logistics of the war. It means the Allies can supply any number of men in the Crimea, 
By the middle of 1855, there are nearly a quarter of a million Allied soldiers in the Crimea. And they're not living off the ground. They're living off what's being brought to them by sea, week in, week out, by steam-powered ships. And there's a telegraph cable that links London and Paris to Balaclava. So they've got, not quite, but near instantaneous. One French marshal, Marshal Canrobert, was so oppressed by the French emperor sending him orders down the telegraph cable that he resigned. He objected to being micromanaged. And I think most of us would understand what that sounds like. Um, he, uh, he basically cashed in his command of the army for a command of a division and swapped with one of his colleagues, who promptly ripped up the cable, uh, which suggests that he was made of tougher stuff. That's an incredible story. Um, was technology or hardware, I suppose, one of the key factors in the outcome of the siege of Sevastopol? Technology and the siege of Sevastopol? Yeah, the technologies that matter are things like the British railway that links uh, Balaclava with the siege line. So there's 10 miles of small gauge railway, just bringing up all the artillery, all the ammunition, all the huts that the men will live in. It enables the British to function as a much bigger army because they don't have to waste manpower moving things logistically. So that railway is a critical piece of the war. And it's put in by two of the big Victorian railway contractors, Pato and Brassey, um, who just volunteered to do it on the floor of the House of Commons. They said, you know, there's a 10-mile distance to cover. It's uphill. We'll send some guys out and fix it. When the war was over, they ripped the railway up and shipped it to the Holy Land, where it was the first railway into Jerusalem. Um, that's really important. The siege of Sevastopol is, is its Western Front circa 1855, massive amounts of artillery, static positions, very heavy bombardments, followed by short-distance infantry assaults. It is the Western Front with pre-modern weapons. And the Russians have all the heavy artillery they need. They're driven out of their positions by the use of mortars, high-angle weapons, and just the persistence of the Allied assaults. The Allies basically grind them down, cut their logistics, uh, and beat them out of their own city. But it's a very long, drawn-out, it's a year-long campaign, massive casualties, particularly on the Russian side. You know, Russia, to this day, sees Sevastopol as one of those iconic things that absolutely matter in their identity. Tolstoy was there. He wrote his first book, as a serving artillery officer at the siege of Sevastopol inside the city. So the battle scenes in War and Peace are straight out of the siege of Sevastopol. In the Second World War, three quarters of a million Russians died defending that city. So it does matter. You know, it has enormous cultural consequence. And, and we underestimate that at our peril. And if we want the Russians to think rationally, we have to understand how they think and what they value. However crazy Putin is, uh, a lot of the things he thinks are things that other Russians think as well. As we head into our final 10 minutes then, um, some quickfire questions um, about the result and the impact of the Crimean War. Richard Cole, 1977, asks, could Russia have won? I don't see any way in which Russia can win this war. It has no means of attacking its real enemies. It can attack Turkey, but the Russians can't get to England or France. The German powers are neutral. The Russians can't march through Prussia and Austria. So the Russians can't win the war. They can only lose it. And this is the catastrophe of their decision-making. They picked a fight that they can't win. Uh, 
The best they can hope for is a score draw and the Allies go home. But that's presuming that the Allies lose the will to fight. So, no, they couldn't win this war. Um, defeat was inevitable. It was just a question of how long it took. And fortunately for the Russians, the Tsar died and his son eventually accepted that while his father had started this, it was probably his job to finish it. And in finishing it, to start the process of rebuilding. NCOS72 asks, did countries' borders change? Yes, there are some small border changes, very, very trifling border changes around in Moldova, in that area. So what we're looking at is the Russians initially invade what is now Romania. It was then um, Turkish uh, principalities. And there's a little bit of border adjustment uh, at the Treaty of Paris in 1856. The main thing that happens is that areas are demilitarized. So the Black Sea is exclusively for merchant and police vessels, no warships allowed. And in the Baltic, the Orland Islands are demilitarized. So the Russians can't rebuild their fortress at Bomasund. And this has a massive strategic impact because it shifts the balance of power firmly in favor of the Western maritime powers. The British or the French can now send fleets into the Black Sea. The Russians can do nothing about it. Very different to 1853. And in the Baltic, Sweden ceases to be under the dominion of the Russian Tsar. From 1815 to 1854, the Swedes have to do what the Russians tell them. After 1855, that's not happening. Sweden joins the Western world. And that's a massive shift. Much like we've seen this year with Sweden and Finland beginning the process of joining NATO, a massive strategic shift which increases the pressure on Russia. And it means that when the the Russians look at defence after the war, they start building forts, they start building coast defence vessels, and they start laying minefields. The Russians do not build an ocean-going battle fleet until the 1890s. That's how bad the war is. They've given up any ambition to be significant at sea, and they don't go back for 40-odd years. That leads nicely, actually, to MHFQ's question on Instagram. What changes did the Crimean War bring about in the militaries of Europe? What lessons were learned? Are there any more things that you think happened? The first thing to point out about the Crimean War is that pretty much everything that happens in the American Civil War is based on the Crimean War. The American government sent a military mission in 1855, went to Crimea, then went through the rest of Europe, and if you look at what they're doing in the crime, in the Civil War, rifled muskets, uh, trenches, massive fortifications, ironclad warships, the Confederate ironclad warships are straight copies of what the British and French were using in 1855. Um, the, the Union comes up with something a bit different. Um, when Union soldiers go into battle wearing little peaked caps called kepi and baggy red trousers, they're dressing up like Frenchmen because the French are the top army in, in the world. So they're they're paying homage to the winners of the Crimean War. Um, So yes, it does matter. Um, Every army in Europe is impacted by this. They race to get better rifles. They race to get better artillery. And they start thinking about new tactics as well. So it's a war that is often seen as a kind of updated version of, of the Napoleonic Wars. It was when it started, but by the time it finished, it was very different. It's a bit like the First World War. 1914, everybody's chasing around on horseback and within six months, everybody's dug in a hole in the ground, just like in the Crimea. 
there's so much firepower out there you've got to get underground otherwise you're going to die and that's that's what's happening and the the american civil war is just a massive rerun of all of those events attacking logistics um what did the americans do in the civil war that wasn't in the crimean war uh, first use of machine guns and the first tactical use of barbed wire everything else is in the crimea and but of course the history of the american civil war is is an american history and it's uh, kind of not invented here idea so the americans like to think they invented all of this stuff but they didn't it was all there in the crimea Alex Plotkin on Facebook asked, what were the short-term and long-term outcomes of the war? Perhaps we could focus there on, I suppose, some of the longer-term outcomes. Yeah. The most obvious one is that the Ottoman Empire survived until 1920, um, making it a very effective roadblock between the Russians in the Black Sea and the Brits in the Mediterranean. And the British were able to hold their position against the Russians right down to 1914. But that was hard work. Britain and Russia were at loggerheads pretty much consistently throughout the 19th century. But this is a a very useful exercise in pushing the Russians back uh, and holding the line. Uh, It gives Louis Napoleon Bonaparte the prestige that he will use to set out on a campaign to try and reorganise Europe along a nation-state construct. So he's trying to create a version of Italy and a version of Germany that would enable France to dominate Europe. So he wants three separate Italian states and he wants probably three separate bits of Germany so he can play them off against each other and expand France's boundaries and begin to do something of what his uncle had achieved. And that, as we know, all comes unstuck in 1870 um, when all the things that made the French successful in the Crimean War failed in the face of better organized, more powerful Prussian armies. It leads directly to Italian unification. The Sardinians send an army to the Crimea and take part in the last major battle at the Chennaia, and that gets them a seat at the peace conference in Paris, which allows them to raise the issue of Italian independence. And in 1859, the French help them drive the Austrians out of northern Italy in two major battles at Magenta and Solferino. So that's beginning to change the way the world looks. The British after this really goes pretty much straight into dealing with the insurrection in India. Uh, And so before they've even digested this, they're already fighting on the other side of the world. And then there's a war with China as well. And then there's possibly even a war with the Union government in North America coming up. So the British don't get back into Europe in a big way because they don't have to. And nobody in Europe challenges vital British interests to the point of war until 1914. And then it's the one thing that really matters, which is keeping the bad guys out of Belgium. So the British are able to step back from this. Um, This is a demonstration somewhat qualified of British military power, but it's an unqualified demonstration of British naval power. And the problem with looking at the Crimean War as a military war is you grossly underestimate just how successful the Royal Navy is and how successful as a result of that Britain is in securing its primary aims which are maritime, not continental. British Army is a very small thing which is used to burn other people's naval bases, like Sevastopol. It is not meant to conquer Europe. Um, Finally, from um, reader and listener questions, the Posumator, how did it affect Russian identity and nationalism? The Crimea is one of many wars in which the Russians have been attacked, as they see it, by 
Eastern or Western powers who've overrun their territory and humiliated them. Uh, and in order to prevent this, they need to occupy a deep security glasses in which they can protect themselves against the onrush of, of hostile forces. This has real resonance. The Ukraine was an area where during this war, the Russians were propagandizing and actively preparing the population to resist Western forces. Uh, with all the arguments that Putin is using today with the Russian people uh, about the hostility of the West, the cultural damage that the West could, could impact. Um, and at one point, the Russians were telling the Mennonites that the, the uh, British or French would invade their territory and eat them. Um, I think the Mennonites found this particularly un, uh, abhorrent. It wasn't true, obviously, but um, since when has the truth and propaganda ever been particularly closely connected? It builds the victim narrative that Putin plays on, that other Russian leaders have played on, and it fits into a pattern. It also fits into the pattern that leads ultimately to the mass depo deportation of the Crimean Tatar population. Crimea isn't ethnically Russian until Stalin removes all the, the Crimean uh, Tatars after the Second World War. And it becomes Ukrainian when Khrushchev hands it over because his mother is Ukrainian. Um, so there's a way in which the Russians see the world and this war fits that pattern. This is a war in which the bad guys attack Russia. They always forget the bit where the Russians start it. They just remember the sad bit at the end when they lose. The Russians started this war. They attacked first. They crossed the Turkish border. They seized Turkish territory. They refused to back down when they were given ample opportunity. And then they complain about losing the war. Um, you can't have it both ways, guys. Either you were the innocent victims or you started the war and you lost. And the second one is true. So it does matter to Russia, but the Russians don't tell the story of the war in quite the way that we ought to. The problem has been that we have told it as a story in Britain of our own failure, and we've completely forgotten the role of everybody else. Who knows what the Russians are doing in the Crimean War? Nobody. We know the charge of the Light Brigade inside out. Does anybody know who was in charge of the Russians that day? We don't know any of these things. We've forgotten who our allies were, the Turks and, and the Second Empire. Uh, we've forgotten that there was fighting in the Baltic, which was hugely important. We've forgotten the economic war that destroyed the Russian economy. We've forgotten all of that. And as a result, we have this cardboard cutout version. And the best way of approaching that is through that great 1960s film, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which absolutely tells all of those stories which are either not true or not significant. So we've confused the window dressing with strategic power. Finally, for me, and we have touched on this a couple of times, but I thought it was worth ending on this point. Is there anything about this story that helps us make sense of what's happening in Russia at the moment and has been happening since 2014? Putin's seizure of the Crimea in 2014 is all about Russian nationalism and patriotism as it is generated by hardline aggressive regimes like Putin's. So it, Sevastopol is a key part of the Russian mythos and has been since 1855 when Tolstoy published his book. But it's worked on by people like Putin to generate greater enthusiasm. So the support for that operation is being built over time. The Crimea these days ethnically is Russian. The Tatar population has moved out. It's a major naval and military base. And most of the people in the Crimea, even in 2014, 
are Russian, not Ukrainian. So in terms of who lives there, it's it's Russian. In terms of geography, it, it still belongs to the to the to the Ukraine. How does it help us understand the current crisis? Uh, Russian autocrats do not face the discipline of of popular government uh, and are prone to use moves like this to bolster their support domestically uh, against more liberal rivals. And ultimately, it's a question of culture. This is Russia saying we are different. We view the world differently. We don't share your values. We don't share your interests or judgments. We don't think it's a war crime to massacre civilians just because you do. Um, we don't think that the mass expulsion of populations is, is anywhere, anything other than just good business. So it exposes the fault line. And on the, on the Russian side of this, we have Putin and his, his worldview. And on the other side, we have more liberal progressive views. And that's what we have to understand. This war was caused by somebody who saw the world in ways that Putin understands. And because he wouldn't back down, the war began and the war was fought to a finish. And the Russians didn't lose territory. They lost a great deal of prestige. They lost economically, politically. And the ultimate outcome of this war is that Russia has to go away and rebuild itself, starting by abolishing the serf status in the early 1860s in order to free up labor for the army and for heavy industry. So the cost of losing this war for Russia was fundamental political and cultural change. And I leave people to think about whether that's what we might see at the end of this conflict or not. That was Andrew Lambert. Andrew is Lawton Professor of Naval History at King's College London. And he's also the author of books including Sea Power States, Maritime Culture, Continental Empires and The Conflict That Made the Modern World, which was published in 2018 by Yale. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.